Our guest is David Neyfeld, a native of the Bay Area and owner of Kefico. He is a well-traveled chef, having gained experience at some of the best restaurants in Europe and here in the U.S. He is also the host of the Main Ingredient podcast. David, how are you? Doing well. Thank you very much for having me, Stephen. It's a pleasure to have you on. For people that may not know you well, I know I gave you a brief introduction, but that can't really speak to a career in the industry. Do you tell us a little bit more about yourself and Kefico? Yeah, sure. Um, well, first of all, I'm Barrier, born and bred. Came here, uh, you know, my family came here by way of the former USSR. They came here as refugees. My mom and dad and my brother did. And we had a very much immigrant lifestyle growing up, you know. My brother and I both got our first jobs when we were like 13, 14, respectively. I was washing dishes and stocking produce at an organic uh, produce stand. He was scooping ice cream at a uh, at an ice cream shop. And that's just kind of the way we fell into the industry. Uh, for me, it was something that I definitely gravitated towards. He ended up getting into the entertainment industry. Uh, but for me, I just felt like it was the only place that made sense for me. I wasn't really meant for school or meant for a classroom. So the second that I could get out to start running around, go working in restaurants, I did. And I think I probably always had a bit of an insecurity by, around the fact that I never did well in school and wanted to prove that I was working worth something by working in really high-end restaurants. And so I kind of chased Michelin stars and chased uh, fancy restaurants. And, you know, um, there's probably an argument to be said that like, maybe I would have been happier working in restaurants that were more casual with food that I maybe related to more on an everyday level, but it definitely gave me a lot of opportunity to work, you know, coming out of all those restaurants, like, uh, you know, I got the opportunity to open Joel Robuchon at the mansion. Uh, we got three Michelin stars there. Um, you know, I got to work for him in Paris for a little while. I worked at Aqua in San Francisco. I worked at Nobu in New York. I worked at 11 Madison Park in New York. Uh, and then I got to travel throughout Europe and stage at some of the best restaurants in the world, uh, including uh, 41 Degrees and, and Tickets, uh, which is uh, Albert Adria's restaurants in um, Barcelona. And I got to work in um, uh, Switzerland and London and in Paris you know, get that experience and come back to California where, you know, I always kind of intended on landing and came back to the Bay Area, ended up opening a restaurant in a formal auto body shop, which became Kefico, uh, which was seven blocks away from where my mom's office has been for the past 30 years. My mom lives like five blocks from my restaurant. You know, it's very much feels like a, you know, has felt like a coming home for me, you know, and it was definitely a satisfying feeling. But, you know, the restaurant that we opened ended up being much more casual and much more of a neighborhood restaurant, because that's, I think, what I was feeling ultimately that I wanted to share. I think that your background in travel is so interesting and unique. Could, I, I'm just really curious, like, what are the different like cultural differences hopping between country to country in those kitchens? Is there like a similar attitude and mentality that all top level restaurants have or they're like eccentricities in different places that were stood out? Yeah, there's certainly eccentricities uh, culturally for sure. Uh, but it also depends on the style of restaurant, right? Like there's certain mentalities. So I was really fortunate to be able to be in Paris during the like explosion of bistronomy, which mm -hmm. really was uh, a phenomenon that happened by virtue of the uh, global recession after 2008, 2009, you had all of these super talented sous chefs who were working in three Michelin star restaurants who kind of stepped out onto their own and they were ready to open their own restaurants. But at that time, there probably wasn't a lot of investment or an appetite for investment for these, you know, fancy, super 
old luxurious uh, restaurants, right? So these uh, people ended up going into like old, you know, sushi bars or Thai restaurants or, you know, French bistros, which were serving, you know, frozen food at that point, right? Like not even like, you know, relevant food. And they just said, well, fuck it. What I'm going to do is I'm going to uh, just put the money where it matters, which is uh, in the food, in the, in the ingredients. Uh, I'm going to adopt these natural wines, which are at a lesser expensive price point. Uh, the service is going to be way more stripped down and way more bare um, and really focus on the essentials, which is, you know, a really fun vibe and an amazing food. And so the eccentricities that you saw inside of those restaurants where they were tiny, really, really small. A lot of times, you know, there wasn't even enough money to, uh, you know, do a revamp. And so a lot of the things you would see were built, you know, sometimes 90 years ago, 75 years ago. So you would see plumbing like that. You would see one sink in an entire bistro, right? Like or an entire restaurant and <laughs> like coming from America where, you know, a health department makes you put, you know, a hand washing sink every six feet or something like that. It you know, you, like you start, close, yeah. Yeah, you know, you just you start to understand that like these are different mentalities. The other thing is recognizing that like a lot of things you know here about food and a lot of the stories that like maybe have scared you about food, they don't exist in certain other places. Like for example, here in Chick here in the United States, like whenever you work with chicken, you're almost like uh you're almost like mentally you know, conditioned to feel like chicken is poisonous, right? Raw chicken mm -hmm. is poisonous, right? Like, and if it gets anywhere, it's like you know, there's going to be mutants like crawling out of like the surface if you don't wash it with like everything possible and then scalding hot water on your hands, right? In Europe, that's just not a thing that they've been conditioned to feel because they don't have these outbreaks in salmonella because they haven't had the mass industrial farming system infect them and impact them the way we have, right? So if somebody's breaking down chicken and, uh, you know, they don't have a chance to wash their hands, they're not like freaking out. But when you as an American cook. And I would say that's an eccentricity on our part, right? Because when you go to like, let's say, you know, I, I stayed at my friend's farmhouse in France outside of Paris in Ile de France. Uh, and he made me a chicken paillard, which was like medium rare with like some beautiful asparagus that he had like, you know, pulled out of the garden. And I'm sitting there looking at it. This is a guy that I worked with at three Michelin star rest restaurant. I worked with him at Robichon. I'm looking at him. I'm like, yo, this, this is a little crudo, no? And uh, he's like, what, don't you trust me? And I was like, I trust you implicitly. I'm, but cool word. And you know, I just sat there and ate a medium rare piece of chicken paillard and it was delicious and I felt great. I felt fine. There was no problem. And so I would say that we have some of those eccentricities. And I think as Americans, we're always built to think other people have the eccentricities, mm -hmm. right? Because they're, they're different than us. But uh, you know, I think I try to look at it from the standpoint of both ends, right? Like they probably look at us the same way, but for sure, every country you go to like in Barcelona, you know, it, it's very interesting because like when you work with the Catalan kids there, you know, they're sometimes they're 16, 17, 18 years old. And those guys literally the same way almost football is meant to like play a role in their life. Like sometimes like culinary is, is that same thing. You're meeting these 17 year old kids who have this like great penchant for thinking about cuisine in this way as like an, a, like a 30 something year old adult, you haven't even, you're just starting to develop, right? Because culturally speaking, it's just more ingrained in them at that point. And if they got into it, a lot of times they got into it when they were 12 or 13, 
And mm-hmm. it was it was not something that was stigmatized, right? Like here, at least now it's more sexy, right? Because of Top Chef and because of Food Network. But when I got into culinary school, it was a little bit more stigmatized. Like it was like the same idea as like, oh, you're taking shop as an elective, right? Like yeah. that, that was like, oh, you must not be very smart, right? Like, or you must not be very scholastic. So I think that traveling through all the countries, you definitely see little things. You also, the interesting part is you see who the, um, who, the kind of support staff is. And so I, I think like a parochial term uh, or a colloquial term of that is like, you know, the menial labor staff, right? And here in California, you know, uh, and I know in Chicago, we ha- we're blessed to have a huge Mexican population and they play a major role, right? And uh, in New York, you know, I really got to get to know a lot of, you know, Dominicans and uh, Puerto Ricans and uh, Africans, right? And so throughout Europe, you know, if you're in Switzerland, a lot of times it's Portuguese. Uh, if you're in um, Spain, you know, a lot of times it's, you know, it's other uh, Spanish people from around Spain. You know, in France, it can be Africans, it can be, uh, you know, um, Middle Eastern uh, folks. So it's that's those are all the interesting things that you really see when you travel. You see how people engage with each other. Uh, I think you also see the um, the difference in how people engage at different socioeconomic levels. Mm-hmm. I think one of the coolest things that I got to see was uh, at the bistros in France and you know with this level of bistronomy that it was such small working quarters, right? That everyone really like, the, you didn't realize this like sense of, oh, this is the hierarchy of the guests, right? This is a VIP or, or this is the sous chef versus the cook. It's like, it's muddled. It's so small and it's so engaged and, and it's, there's a lot happening. And there's so much energy just vibing in the room that, you know, that Anna Wintour could be sitting next to, you know, a local, you know, plumber at two tables, which are like four inches apart, drinking the same wine because they can both afford it because it's both, you know, it's, it, there's a limited wine list. It's all delicious and it's all really good. It's all locally made and natural. And they're all getting the same menu. There's not like this crazy, like, oh, these are the supplements. And if you're balling, you get the white truffles and the Barolo. Mm-hmm. And I think that was really cool to see too, because when I had come back to the United States, I really took a lot of that feeling and that vibe with me. And what I wanted to present at KFICO was a little bit more of a, I guess, like a democratic feel to the restaurant. And, and that's ultimately why my business partner and I leave half of the restaurant open for walk-ins or you know, why historically we have always left half the restaurant open for walk-ins because we didn't want it to be this thing that it was so destination driven that mm-hmm. you you could only get in if you planned way in advance. It's like, well, where's the fun in that? Like you want to also be able to feel like, yo, I'm going to a show at the independent. Uh, I'm going to pop by and see if I can snag a seat at KFICO. Um, mm-hmm. And so what if it's two hours, right? Of a wait, like I'm gonna go across the street and I'm gonna have a drink. I'm gonna have some friends with some friends. I'm gonna come in. I'm gonna crush some pasta. Uh, and then I'll go to my show, right? And that really, for us, I think those are the things that travel ultimately gave to me, and and the uh, you know, so to speak, the eccentricities that I got to observe there, but also recognize that I had some eccentricities as well. I think that's a really good perspective to have because a lot of times when you know you you step out and you travel, that this is the sense of like, oh, they do that different, but like ultimately they do that for a reason, and the same reason that we have to handle chicken the way that we do because of the decisions we've made. It's funny with the whole cutting board and like you can tell when someone's about to touch a chicken that I thought that was spot on and so funny. But it's just funny to see like, even like when I went to Morocco, the same thing was true where you're like, oh, they're going to go eat that chicken that's running around right there. 
and then I'm going to go eat it at the market over here. And it's that chicken right there. It shouldn't be such a big ordeal for our brains to go through, but because of the way our culture is set up, it's a new experience. Yeah, totally. And, you know, I think the discomfort you feel in traveling, if you feel zero discomfort when you travel, you're not doing it right, in my opinion. Right. Mm -hmm. Like, I like, and, and don't get me wrong. I think, dude, it would be dope to be a baller and go out and have like the most amazing, luxurious experiences. And I'm not frowning on that either. Right. Like, I'm not one of those like starving artists who wants to be broke all my life. Yeah. Uh, I, I love the feelings of luxury. Right. Like, I think that's all well and good. But I think the whole purpose of traveling, at least in your youth, is to experience the world as it is and and take it as it is, right? And and absorb some of that stuff. And I think feeling that level of discomfort and not knowing what's going to happen and 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 being just unsure of your surroundings, I think that's everything. That that mm-hmm. is honestly that that's the whole that's the whole point of what we're doing when we go out there collecting all that information from all those different restaurants would there's like a one cardinal virtue you'd say that all of these successful restaurants had no no not really you know because i i I think i would have answered that a different way maybe years ago but Mm -hmm. the truth is no like i think the one thing that we all don't take into account is luck right like Mm -hmm. luck plays a huge role i've seen a ton of really good restaurants that the chefs were dope right resume right everything and somehow it just was a dud it did not catch right didn't catch traction and then i've seen restaurants that are by all accounts like supremely mediocre just really do well and and stick around for many years Uh, luck plays its own role right luck will have its say in what you're doing um i think the beauty of our industry is the fact that it can be a such a diverse um group of business models and a diverse set of you know values and types of cuisine and types of management and types of structure which can find uh success right i I, you know i would say the one thing that i know of right and keep in mind that i wasn't privy to everybody's financial situation but i think the one thing that tends to ring true for me is people who tend to be very mindful of their cash flow and Mm. recognize that cash flow is such an important part of every business. And anytime you're cash constrained, it puts you in a spot to make bad decisions. Mm. And so the one thing that I would say that I've recognized with all really good businesses, like tenants of good, you know, and, and that's ultimately what we're talking about, right? Like we always say restaurants, but it's a business. Right. Mm -hmm. It's not a it's not a hobby unless, you know, you you have some uh, incredible, you know, benefactor who's just writing the bill and doesn't care. Um, But the majority of us run businesses. And I would say that the one thing that that all of these successful places have in common is the fact that they recognize that cash flow plays a major role in everything. And you can't overspend and not have that cash coming in. Right. So recognizing that you either need to be crazy busy. Uh, or if you're not crazy busy, you need to be making smart decisions on streamlining uh, and you need to be smart with your labor and creative with your labor. But, you know, there, I guess the one thing that I can tell you is universal is that nothing is universal, right? Like there is there is an exception to everything that I will tell you. I can totally dig that, especially with the whole cash flow thing. There is that idea because there's a romanticism about opening a restaurant, right? That a lot of people jump into. They've maybe they've been working in a restaurant their whole life, and they're finally like, "I got the loans together. I can do this. I can create my own 
vision and instead of thinking of it like a painting they have to remember they have to sell the painting eventually so yeah sure you know and and to your point about loans and all that stuff and and maybe this is for another podcast but you know i think people also need to recognize what the implications are of every financial structure that they get into you know like mm -hmm. when they get a loan they need to understand how are they going to service that loan right yeah. if the cash flow that's coming into your restaurant is not enough to service the loan and then service all of your operating costs and then every other kind of little thing that it takes to get to the bottom line and mm -hmm. then kicks off enough money to you know let's say return some level of roi to your initial investment mm -hmm. i mean I, a you're going to be compounding debt constantly until the point where you can't take in your business is going to fall apart or you're just going to be working for someone else for the rest of your life because the one thing i also try and tell other entrepreneurs and business people is like if you work at a, your business and you cannot leave your business, let's say for two weeks to say, hey, I'm going on vacation, like you guys deal with this, it's on you, I'm, I'm just gonna leave and go live my life. You're not running a business, you bought yourself a job, right? <laughs> and you might yeah. own your job, you might be the boss of your job, but it's your job, mm -hmm. right? And that's, that's a crucial differentiator between being a true entrepreneur and being, you know, like, you know, someone that owns, uh, you know, you can own a business, but like being an entrepreneur and having a job, those are two, I think, big differences. Thanks for tuning in, everyone. Part two is coming up with deep dives into how to build a successful restaurant, the Independent Restaurant Association, and much more. If you enjoy our podcast, like, comment, and subscribe, and most importantly, share it with your friends. And as always, our exclusive merch and bar tools are available with 10% off using code FOLLOWYOURMUSE at yourwaywardmuse.com slash shop. All right, let's get back to it. Well, this is totally the podcast for this, so... I'd love to dive into that a little bit more. Um, obviously, loans are something that you you want to avoid when it comes because you'd rather have either an investor or be able to put up enough capital in the beginning. Um, what would you say would be a, a smart move or a ratio that you've seen works better for loans to investment and uh, percentage returns on that? Yeah, that's a great question. So, so <clears throat> I want to be clear, loans are not a bad idea, right? Um, mm -hmm. Loans sometimes can be very useful because a loan done correctly means that you don't need to sell off equity of your business. If you mm -hmm. believe your business is going to be something that ultimately provides a great amount of money to the bottom line eventually. And, um, you know, so there's, there's two terms, right? And sometimes uh, so ROI sometimes gets misused, right? Because like mm -hmm. an ROI is only a return on your initial investment, right? So it's the capital that kind of, you know, gets spent on the business, the ROI. So let's say that's a million dollars, right? The ROI is what it takes to get that million dollars paid back, right? So I think ultimately people don't recognize that after that million dollars pays back, it's not a ROI anymore, right? Uh, there's another term for that, which is called an IRR, which is an internal rate of return. Mm -hmm. And so that means like the yearly amount that on top of that you get for like, let's say the lifespan of the business or the lease or whatever. Right. So if you believe your business is going to be like something that is super high volume, a uh, really streamlined costs, all that stuff, and you're going to be dropping uh, cash down to the bottom line uh, significantly, well, then it behooves you to retain as much of that equity as you can. Right. But the thing that you need to consider is the fact that when you get a loan, what percentage, what interest percentage are you getting that loan at? And how are you going to service that? Right. And 
are you going to be certain? And, and it's all about amortization, right? You look at the lifeline of your entire business. And that's why I really like long leases, right? A lot mm -hmm. of people come to me sometimes and they're like, oh, well, you know, I'm going to get this lease just so in case things don't work out, then I can get out. And I'm like, well, why are you even planning a business to not work out? Right? Mm -hmm. Like your, your whole mindset should be, this business is going to be uh, a grand slam and I'm going to want every year possible at the pre-negotiated rent, right? I am never going to want to go to market rate rent, right? So what I'm going to do is I'm going to negotiate this 15, 20, 25, 30-year lease. Uh, I'm going to make sure I pre-negotiate the escalations or and I'm going to make sure it never goes to market value. And then when I take that loan out, I'm going to amortize that loan among, let's say, 10 years of that lease. So that means that that, that loan is going to be paid back in 10 years. Um, and I'm going to have an additional 10, 15 years of a business that I'm running where essentially I've paid back that loan. I've amortized it over 10 years. And now I'm all that money is coming to me. Now, mm -hmm. that doesn't always work, right? Like you need to so, sometimes a loan, you know, is good for a portion of what you're getting. Um, and that helps you retain some of your equity. And then what you want to do is you sell some of your equity as well, right? And then you have to value that and each business is different. I don't want to go too much down a rabbit hole about valuation of business, because mm -hmm. I feel like that's something that like people can look up in any any kind of, uh, you know, investment for dummies, uh, book yeah. or Google it or whatever. But basically, you, you have to look at what your business is valued at, what you think you're going to be able to put down to the bottom line. The one last thing I would say about long leases, and this is something that, you know, uh, if you read the book, Setting the Table, it, I got the opportunity to work for Danny Meyer for a number of years. And mm -hmm. his big thing that he'll tell you about long leases is they're incredible because they're an asset. But the one thing you always have to remember is a lease should always be assignable, meaning that if you're project is not working out and you need to cut bait and run, you're able to take that lease and use it as an asset and sign it over to someone else. And that's your, that's your way of making sure that you have like that kind of out. Yeah. That's like your, uh, life, life fest, life preserver. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Well, thank you for diving into that. I, I always find that part really interesting. Cause I mean, that's probably the, you know, you, when you look at your five-year plan, that's, I'm beginning to see it kind of over in the distance. So it's nice to peek into your brain about that. Yeah. You know, ultimately each project is different. Um, mm -hmm. You know, my business partner and I approach each project differently. We look at, you know, how much debt we want to take on, how much equity we ultimately want to put off. We look at cash flow. We look at how much re uh, revenue, you know, you also look at like, you know, who's putting money into the deal. Are developers putting money into the deal? Are you paying for everything? Is the landlord giving you tenant improvement? All mm -hmm. of these things. Like uh, sometimes you're working, walking into a place and it's turnkey. Right. And mm. so all of those things play a role in each, each, um, you know, each investment and each project is different. So I don't want to try and say that there's a one size fit all for, uh, for anything. Yeah. Cause I mean, you really can't, because if you have enough saved where you think you can just pull it off with a loan and you don't need to get rid of the ownership of your business, then you just need to believe in yourself and make it work. Total, totally. Um, you know, and, and I think to that end, that's when you just have to, you know, it's all about what your personal, what your personal goals are with the business, right? Um, and also your first deal, you know, there's there's a cliche out there, which I totally think is the right one to approach is like, always make your first deal your worst deal, mm -hmm. um, which is like, you have to get a deal done. You know, you should be smart and make sure that this deal gives you flexibility and that you're not going to regret it 15 years down the line or 10 years down the line. But always remember that like, 
your first deal is always going to be the one that's that's challenging and you should always make sure that like moving forward you're always getting at least incrementally better terms on every deal moving forward because at that point you're a seasoned operator and you have something that you can you know show prove point to you can be like look at what we've done here these are the terms mm -hmm. that we got there we're no longer it's like you know it's yeah. like a quote that an actor gets or something like that well that was the quote i got for the last movie this quote is going to be now more because i have a bigger draw yeah i can totally see that that's something to look forward to too thinking about place number two place number three right this episode is brought to you by Salsa Matcha by Chef Rishi. Salsa Matcha is the nutty, do-anything sauce you didn't know you needed. It hails from the state of Veracruz in Mexico. It'll completely shake up your taste buds and your cooking. Brighten up your dishes with three different expressions of this must-have, flavorful product. Personally, I put it on everything. And I mean everything. Have it delivered anywhere in the U.S., just go to yourwaywardmuse.com slash matcha by Rishi. We kind of skipped over this, and I want to double back, and we'll probably just create a separate segment because we're having such a lively conversation. But I wanted to know what your role in the IRC was, the Independent Restaurant Coalition through 2020. Yeah, so interestingly enough, you know, one of your former guests, uh, Josh Harris, you know, uh, he had called me. Um, you know, very early on in the pandemic, and it was like, hey, um, you know, we're kind of getting this group together, um, you know, the IRC, which I had already heard mumbling, murmurings of, and we had already started, you know, kind of like a Bay Area coalition and stuff like that. And been, you know, I think everyone in all segments of the country were just getting together and being like, yo, shit's getting real right now. We have to, we have to get together and we have to work towards, you know, a solve essentially and mm -hmm. um ultimately the irc was this you know group of people that you know really just started bringing in all of those micro groups together and so josh had hit me up and there he was like yo we need uh somebody who's going to have like an energy base here in san francisco um obviously you know the uh speaker of the house uh is a representative from san francisco so that plays a big role in it as well and you know, I'd come in and just, I was super, you know, ready to just get to work and do whatever I could do to be helpful. And they had already kind of been making moves and doing whatever they could on PPP and change, making changes to PPP. And, you know, we had basically, you know, through, you know, the grace of, you know, uh, Earl Blumenauer and also Roger Wicker, both, you know, a, a Democrat in the House and a Republican in the Senate, you know, we had gotten these two bills, the Restaurant Act written, and, you know, we we're about to, you know, take them to the House to and, and start getting, uh, you know, co-signers on that. So I think my thing is just like, you know, you took a bunch of people like me out of our natural habitat, which is like being in a kitchen, just hustling every single day. And now you've given us way too much time on our hands. So what are mm -hmm. we gonna do? We gotta point that energy somewhere. And so for me, it kind of just became this thing of like an obsession where I was like, yo, I'm going to figure out how to get to these people. Like I'm gonna call everyone relentlessly. I'm gonna email everyone relentlessly. I'm gonna start Googling people and being like, okay, where where's your family from? What, you know. Okay, you're a Republican in in Bakersfield. Um, you know your first business was a sandwich shop. Cool, that's something I can use. I'm gonna I'm gonna start reaching out to you and being like, hey, you know, 
you should be a friend of the restaurant industry. Like, let's talk about it. Like, can I get on the phone with you? Hitting mm -hmm. up all of our investors, trying to leverage every relationship we've ever had with, with, you know, anybody who'd ever done like an event with us, like all of this stuff. And I think it's just something that, um, you know, for me felt, I don't want to say natural, but the idea of building relationships with people and talking to people is natural for me. I've never had that issue um, mm -hmm. of being, you know, shy to go just spark up conversation. And I don't care who it is. It doesn't bother me. The fact that they're someone who's in some level of supposed power. And I think that that worked, right? There was something about that that worked. And, you know, I was ultimately given the opportunity to uh, play a role on the advisory board and then given one of the two leadership roles here in California, along with Carolyn Stein, who's in Southern California, super incredible restaurateur. And, you know, it was just something, it was like just an honor to be included in the team, you know, like, mm -hmm. I mean, every day you got to be on calls with like legends, right? You know, I got to be on calls with like my former employer, Will Gadara, and, you know, with Bobby Stuckey, who in my mind is like, that dude is, uh, when you talk about like someone in the industry that's just like, has, has every trait an attribute you want to follow, right? Like this dude, like is constantly his favorite thing to do is post pictures of him running food, right? Like, but he's mm -hmm. like a master song. He owns hella restaurants. And he's just, you know, these people and you see them on the call every day and they're all hustling for the same thing you're hustling for. And ultimately we through just tenacity and grit and not giving up, you know, our whole kind of, you know, motto is that like, we're the little, little engine that could. Mm -hmm. And we just kept going up that mountain, not taking no for an answer. Every time people told us it was completely unrealistic that we were thinking that we were going to get a standalone bill or, or uh, a direct restaurant relief. And here we are, you know, a year later with $28.6 billion in a restaurant focused relief fund, which is going to go towards bars, restaurants, cafes, um, all of these folks who desperately need relief. And I mean, we're not done yet, right? Like we're going to go back and try and get more to make sure that every single restaurant, bar, cafe, um, you know, sandwich shop, whatever uh, is taken care of and, and they're not left behind, right? And mm -hmm. then uh, beyond that, who knows what we're capable of? I know that the IRC uh, has a lot of things we need to do internally in terms of organization and getting to a place where we feel like we're representing um, our entire constituency. But beyond mm -hmm. that, I think that working together and being a united group, we can accomplish a lot of things. And I think we're going to be able to solve a lot of the issues that have plagued our industry, um, mm. you know, and whether they be about inequity or whether they be about, you know, labor models or, you know, whether they be about profitability, I think that the IRC has an opportunity to have its say in a lot of those different places. And the people there are, have truly are altruistic motives you know like mm -hmm. uh one of the one of the you know robert st john who's a really dope restaurateur in um down in mississippi um you know he even brought up on the last call he's like you know a lot of groups if they just got 28.6 billion dollars they'd be like yo let's let's keep this on the qt like yo like let's make yeah. sure we get it first and everything like that but like the irc's whole men mentality right now is get out and spread the word get as many places as possible get it mm -hmm. in cantonese mandarin get it in you know spanish speaking get it in russian get in you know whatever you can do to get the word out and so i think ultimately the irc has a really good shot at 
um, you know, withstanding the test of time, but we're, you know, early on and we just fought this massive battle and there's still way more to fight. I, I find the IRC really inspirational and I think that it is such a needed organization thinking about, and it's heartbreaking to think about all the places that just COVID was the last straw and they just didn't have the resources available to them. And there wasn't, um, uh, an association for restaurants that was really geared towards the smaller, you know, mom and pop shop and to know that the IRC has those places backs. Um, I mean, I, I can't really put into words how comforting that must be to people who have made that, you know, investment in their lives to open a restaurant. Cause it can be extremely nerve wracking to say, well, I believe that the food that I, you know, grew up making is going to be able to pay for my family. Yeah, well, I mean, you know, more often than not at this point, you know, we've gotten to a place in this industry where it's very hard to run one restaurant and have that be enough to, you know, pay for, you know, a, a middle class life or to send kids mm -hmm. to college or, or whatever. Right. And so I think that a lot of those things are things that can be solved and can be fixed by, through education of consumers recognizing mm -hmm. the fact that, you know, uh, the, the experience of going out is too inexpensive and that that's being subsidized by low labor and people not, um, you know, people not getting paid enough, but also it's being subsidized by owners of restaurants who are not making enough money to, uh, you know, to live a, I mean, middle-class would be incredible, right? Like, mm -hmm. but you know, I, I would, I, I'd even say that a lot of people can't support a family running yeah. a single restaurant, right? Like they have to open multiple restaurants to support their family and to create some level of savings for a retirement. Mm -hmm. And I mean, it feels like it's such a large, another large battle to fight because it, this idea of like, even just our tip system seems so ingrained, but it's driving costs of goods down to the point where we're forced to use industrialized products that you know, aren't sustainable. And then we're also not able to serve the level of quality that we'd want to, or have the, you know, level of staff that we'd need to create the right experience. Well, the way I look at it is this, right? Like you got to look around the restaurant. And so like, yes, that, like you just pointed out, you said, you said, um, buying lesser quality products is certainly one way to lower your expenses, right? If you mm -hmm. go to Kfico, um, you know, anyone who follows us on Instagram, anyone who follows me on Instagram, they see that I'm at the market three, four times a week. And I don't negotiate with farmers, right? Like yeah. whatever they're selling, whatever, that's what I'm buying it for. Right. And we're buying, you know, whole animals from local uh, ranchers and farmers, and we're buying the best olive oils and we're buying incredible dairy. You know, it's like, I was talking to another colleague of mine from another restaurant, uh, you know, and I was like, if we were to just switch to, you know, conventional dairy, right, we would probably save one and a half points on our food cost, if not more. Mm -hmm. And, you know, and that's a decision we make. We make that decision to spend more money because we believe in a product. Okay, so there's that, right? Like, and so if that's like a non-negotiable tenant, now mm -hmm. the, nether, the next place you look at, right, is you look at labor, right? And you need to take a, a deep look at the people who work around you and you need to look at their lifestyles and you need to say to yourself, like, honestly, like, can these people afford to live? Um, and I'm, uh, let's say like, 
right above the poverty line, right? Like you can afford your rent, you can afford clothes on your back, you can afford food for your families. But I'm not talking about like building a retirement fund, right? I'm just talking mm -hmm. about survival, right? And you take a look at them and you say, you know, can they afford to work a 40 hour work week and, and live and support themselves and, and the people in their household, right? And then beyond that, right, you have your deal points. Uh, rent is rent. You know, you can negotiate rent. But like, listen, a lot of times if you're going to a restaurant in a fancy neighborhood or in a cool up and coming neighborhood, you already know what it is, right? Like you're looking around, you know the fact that like rents are getting driven up by like cool restaurants and the fact that you want to live there, right? Mm -hmm. And you just start looking around. And so my question to you is when you look at all of those things, what do you want the person to skip out on? Do you want like point me point me out the person in this restaurant that you want to make less money? Because yeah. if you can point that person out and you're like that person's making way too much money for my liking, then we can have a discussion. But the truth is nobody actually wants to say that. Nobody mm -hmm. feels that way. Even I don't care if you're in a Republican state or if you're in a Democratic state, right? All of them don't want to point at someone and be like, yeah, well that person should just make less money. Uh, but at the same time, I don't care how progressive the city you're in they'll still complain about the price of food, right? Yeah. You can be in San Francisco and somebody might look at something and say, hey, uh, don't you think it's kind of crazy that you would have a $45 half chicken? Well, I don't think it's that crazy considering the fact that a whole chicken from that farm costs, you know, $21, <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. raw and not broken down and not cooked and not stored and not, you know, your dishes weren't washed and the chemicals weren't bought and, and all this other stuff. Plus, like you talk about the accoutrement on the plate. Right. And so I think a lot of people don't recognize the fact that, you know, this is not a this is not a uh, political conversation. This is 100 percent like a cultural uh, conversation that we need to change our perspective on what it costs to go dine out, to have people serve us on hand and foot to go and, and think about all the different hands that are involved in the process of you getting something right, because it doesn't start and stop at the door of the restaurant either. You've mm -hmm. got drivers, you've got delivery people, you've got maintenance people, you've got farmers, you've got farm hands, right? You've got uh, any slew of other supportive kind of industries, and they're all taking and and putting, you know, their their little profit margin on the thing. And without them, you can't get what you're eating, right? Like mm -hmm. you would be farming, or you'd go to the grocery store and cook and clean and do all that shit for yourself, right? And so we have to recognize the fact that none of this stuff is free. The table you're sitting at was not free. The seat that you're sitting in is not free. The the plate that gets chipped every, let's say, sixth or seventh time it goes to the dish area to replace is not free. Uh, the chemicals to clean your dish, your your glassware, so it doesn't have spots on it and and lipstick smudges, that's not free. Um, you know, the napkin you wiped your face with, getting that laundered, not free. All of this stuff is not free and, and, and people need to stop equating it to going to the market to Whole Foods and getting a chicken and saying, well, I got this whole chicken at Whole Foods for you know, $7.99 or $8.99 or whatever it was. How mm -hmm. come your chicken costs $45? Well, I'm sorry to say Whole Foods, but that chicken is not that good. Um, it's okay. It's good. It's yeah. fine. Like when I'm eating it at home, it's fine. It's serviceable, but it's not extraordinary. And I also didn't have everything done for me. Right. Yeah. I think that there is also something to be said about the, the necessity of restaurants, because even here in Chicago, like the amount of people in this food driven city that went stir crazy just because they couldn't go out to restaurants. 
I, I mean, you can't put a real number on it, but seeing guests come back in and the first thing they say, I am so happy to be sitting down in a restaurant again. There is a need for that, you know, sense of community that a restaurant provides. And I think that that commodity should be quantifiable in a slightly higher ticket average. So that way we can have an equitable lifestyle for the people who are creating it for you. Well, you know, on, on my podcast, the main ingredient, um, Lee Wollen, who's a chef in Chicago, you know, and a very good friend of mine, he, uh, he actually said something very, very interesting and very poignant, right? Like if you're going to go see Lady Gaga, right? You have, when you buy a ticket, I mean, go ahead and look at the ticket and how many fees come beyond the ticket, right? Like the $45 administrative fee and the $5 of this fee and this tax and like, the, you know, all these different things. And that's on top of like, you know, a $275 actual fee to go listen mm-hmm. to someone make noise with their mouth, right? There is no, there's nothing they have to buy for that. Like, yes, there's a stadium, there's all this stuff. But like, when you think about it, like, what they're selling you is something you get to hear once, right? And and that's it. And that's just an experience, right? And so I don't understand why people th- is like sh- have such a different viewpoint of that experience and also the experience that is provided for you when you walk inside of a restaurant, right? The ambiance, mm. the music, the lighting, the seating, the comfort of the seats, the 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 remembering of your name when you walked in and what mm-hmm. you like to drink, all of those things are brought to you by talent and work, right? And they're not free. Um, you're not going to a dinner party at your friend's house, right? Mm-hmm. You're going to see people who are on, you know, that in a lot of ways, like, I, and I'm not saying they're being fake, but what I am saying is they are like on stage. And mm-hmm. they are creating a persona. That smile that they're walking around the dining room with, that's something their manager is coaching them on and saying, hey, let's make sure that we're always cognizant of the people, the fact that people are staring at us, right? So let's have our shoulders back. Let's have a, a good look on our face. Let's not look like we're over laboring, you know, doing mm-hmm. our jobs. It's like all of that plays a role in it. And it's like we're doing that for the benefit of the guest. Right. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And remembering the fact that all of this is for the guest. And so when the guest walks into a restaurant, I think they need to be a little bit more aware of the fact that, you know, everything is being done for them, mm-hmm. including keeping like tabs on their mood and how we can impact their mood in a better way. Right. And so I think there's a cost to that, as you really, um, you know, pointed out before I started on this. Like, I think that people need to recognize that, like, we we are not only just providing you with sustenance we're providing you with an experience absolutely and i mean you can find out more of that information too when you listen to your podcast the main ingredient uh, when you had uh dominique Crenon, on she i mean just listening to the first part of it was so enlightening you've had amazing guests on there too like gwyneth paltrow has even jumped on there she had part one and part two that's crazy iron man's wife y'all she's on that podcast so I would definitely suggest people go and listen and, and learn from you all as well over there. Yeah. You know, the podcast is something that, um, you know, I think for me was needed, uh, for a level of like catharsis in my life. Uh, mm-hmm. I think I was really getting sick of the Twitter form of communication. Everything is about owning someone. Everything is about mm-hmm. burning someone. Everything is about, uh, either, 
you know, canceling someone or getting canceled by someone, or I mean, you know, it's just like, it just all these things. It's like, everything is based on 140 characters where you can't really uh, dig it deep into anything. And I think that recognizing the fact that like the world that we live in has nuance, you can mm. have a really, really a multifaceted, multi-layered conversation with people that you may not even agree with. And you will get to common ground after having a long enough discussion with them and, and kind of uh, scratching the surface and, and, and digging deeper. Mm -hmm. And I, I really, that's what I was yearning for. And I felt like that's what the culture was missing uh, mostly. I mean, I know it's funny that I'm saying it's missing because there's a million podcasts out there today, but I think that genuine, generally speaking, the podcast uh, phenomena has been a really good thing for discourse because you now get to hear conversations in long form rather than snippets and people get to contextualize things. People get to explain themselves. Mm -hmm. uh, people get platforms that they, if, if nobody else wants to give them a platform, they can create their own platform and just say, well, I'm going to just start talking about stuff that I care about. Mm -hmm. And if you want to hear it, you can go hear it. And it's also very hard for people to take, unless it's like really edited, um, mm -hmm. It's hard to take people out of context, right? Because they get a chance to sit there and explain their entire thought. And I think that that's something super important. And so that's why ultimately I did the podcast. I, I was lucky enough to also, you know, call on some friends like, you know, Gwyneth mm -hmm. Paltrow and Andrew Zimmern and Tom Calico and, and have them on the podcast. And I think that also just, you know, it helps get the word out there, but it's cool to talk to people like that in a longer form, right? Mm -hmm. Because you also see the fact that they're, they're regular people. They talk about regular shit too. They're not like always on their, you know, just talking points, right? They can let their yeah. guard down and be a little bit more real than you see them in, let's say like a five minute interview. Yeah. I can, I mean, you're kind of preaching to the choir here. I felt a lot of the same things when this came about at first, it was supposed to just be like a web series where I, you know, dove deep into cocktails and showed, you know, some of the best bartenders in the industry doing their thing. But then the pandemic hit and I thought, well, I think that education is going to be an important part and being able to speak to people who've navigated through this thing, I think would help others. So here we are, David Nafel navigating, uh, helping us navigate through this. I appreciate your time, brother. It's It's been amazing speaking to you and kind of gaining your perspective and, you know, just kind of taking notes over here. I, I got a, a good list here of things. I'm going to have to play this back a few times to pick up all the nuggets of truth you laid down. I appreciate it. Well, I appreciate you having me. I think, um, you know, like I said, I think the more people out there are creating discourse and, um, you know, and having nuance in conversations, I think the better off we all are. I think we're in a really challenging time right now, but it's good because we're in a polarizing time. We're experiencing, you know, the, the great depression, the civil rights movement and influenza all in like one year. Right. And I think that out of great strife comes great opportunity. And, you know, you never want to waste, you know, a challenging time because that's when you really, I think can grow. And I think our society is in need of growth. We got to a point where, you know, we're too quickly able to just silence each other. We're too quickly able to unfollow each other. We're too quickly able to unfriend each other. And I think that the more people out there like you creating conversations, the better it is for everybody. And I think that's going to give us much more perspective 
And I think right now perspective is crucial. Thanks for tuning in to Wayward Muse. You can find us anywhere you get your podcasts. Thanks for tuning in. Like, share, comment, subscribe. So that way we can get this message out to more people. Next week is going to be Mike Capaferri from Thunderbolt LA. Talk about an amazing cocktail mind. You are going to want to have your notepad ready for the episode next week. All right. Cheers, y'all. Peace.